This is Josh Korda of Dharma Punks, New York. My Buddhist pastoral work is supported by donations only. If you'd like to help, Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or use the PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast and thanks for your support. All of us have what we could refer to as core needs throughout life. Core needs are emotional conditions that support our well-being, our, our autonomic nervous system, that regulate our emotions, and that enhance the opportunities for us to grow and uh, develop new tools and connections. The earliest needs we have and they stay throughout, as Bowlby pointed out, the great uh, psychologist John Bowlby pointed out throughout the entirety of our lives. The first core need is to be seen in the eyes of another, to be monitored for our safety and for our basic survival elements to be fulfilled, such as food, uh, warmth, protection, and so forth. So the earliest need <clears throat> human beings have is literally the sense of being monitored or important in the mind of someone else. And so one of the first attributes or skills that develop in a baby uh, only weeks after birth is the ability to make eye contact, which of course, over the course of evolution, Eye contact activates oxytocin and is a bonding uh, peptide. And therefore, the baby's ability to make eye contact enhanced survival. And so it was uh, um, one of the first attributes that developed. Next needs are for empathetic understanding, someone to mirror our emotional states in a subtle way, non-verbally, to indicate that they understand our internal experience. And this core event of emotional mirroring uh, has been shown to be vastly foundational in the child's development of uh, an ability to communicate, know the minds of others, know how to bond uh, it's one of the skills that are developed when there's empathetic understanding between a child and an adult is the child learns what's called mentalization, which learns how to read or understand what's going on in the minds of others. Empathetic understanding is vital for emotion co-regulation. It's how our autonomic nervous system moved into states of relax, rest, digest, social engage uh, by another. And when we have empathetic understanding, soothing becomes possible, which is, of course, another core need to be soothed when we are um, in a state of emotional distress, frightened, uh, understimulated, overstimulated, and so forth. All of us need early on uh, expressed delight and encouragement. Expressed delight is when someone sees us and their face and their body language brightens, and that communicates to us uh, an inherent sense of self-worth and esteem. Uh, works of Daniel Brown, David Elliott, and so many point to the vital role of people expressing delight to us in maintaining a sense of worthiness about ourself. Um, and encouragement, of course, is what allows us to meet certain developmental milestones, like the confidence to proceed in life. We do have a need for independence and a need for someone to model success in the world for us, how to get their goals accomplished. 
So an adult, a parent, a sibling, someone in the family system that shows us what it is like to to respond to setbacks and challenges and also how to go about projects and engagements with the world in a successful way. And then, of course, we also need companionship, which is a sense of some, a sense of someone being on the journey of life with us. So these are core needs. And the earliest need, again, is to be seen, and then the empathetic understanding, and then more core needs develop as our, uh, we face more uh, challenges, developmental uh, situations, and so forth. And when these needs are met, um, something very important happens, which is a secure base is internalized or developed. A secure base is an internal representation of support and that uh, care is available. So the child that feels reliably seen, soothed, understood, appreciated, encouraged, when the parent isn't available, the child doesn't become desperate because the child has a felt sense, an internal representation that the parent is still available. And so when this happens, the child can now go off and explore the world around her. Uh, her attachment system switches off. And so she can go and interact with other people. She can go into a school or to a playground and without needing to hover around the parent because she's unsure of her connection with them, she can actually go out and interact with the world. And of course, what happens is new situations will occur that are overwhelming or scary. Maybe she'll come into contact with a group of kids that are frightening or a situation that's novel that she's unfamiliar with. And so her need for support will return. And so her attachment system will switch back on and encourage her to go back to the mother or father for once again being seen and empathized with and, and encouraged and so forth. So this is a cycle of when our needs are met, we have the secure base, we feel confident, we feel a sense that people are looking out for us, care about us. We go off, we explore the world when things happen that are stressful or difficult, then our attachment system switches back on, the exploration system switches off, and we go back to our um, caregivers for support. And we keep doing this throughout the course of our lives. Uh, eventually, we transition from original family systems to peer support, groups of friends, and we'll, uh, we may wind up in uh, core attachments, uh, romantic relationships. And so we transition the who we seek these core needs from. Um, now, in there are times, of course, when the support cycle is interrupted. When, as children, we have um, uh, intense experiences, uh, novel experiences, exciting experiences, and we want to be seen and appreciated and encouraged by our parents, but our parents might be, or our siblings, or our, te our teachers, or whoever is uh, we're seeking. Uh, these needs to be met from, they might not be available. They might be stressed out. They might have other issues they're facing. They might uh, be overwhelmed. And so the person that we're seeking to have our core needs met from is not available, doesn't pay attention, doesn't empathize, doesn't appreciate or encourage, and so forth. So the needs aren't met. And what will happen is our muscles will tense and we'll move from a state of parasympathetic, rest and digest, our autonomic system will switch up into mobilization state. Our heart rates will raise above 72 beats per minute. There'll be a need to either cling or protest 
for um, attachment. And then eventually, hopefully a parent sees that we're in a state of needing attention that hasn't been met and they'll pay attention and they'll create a sense of empathy and emotional understanding and our muscles will relax and we'll return to the parasympathetic uh, state because we've seen enough, we've experienced safety through having our needs being met. But suppose in certain family systems or in, uh, environments, uh, educational environments, uh, peer groups and so forth, uh, extended family systems, suppose there are persistent environmental failures and environmental failures are just a phrase for times when our needs are not met as children uh, on an ongoing basis. So <clears throat> what happens then? Well, children invariably conclude, not so much intellectually, but just come to the, uh, the felt conclusion that there's something wrong with their needs and they're internalized as personal failures because the child cannot know that there's something amiss with the parents. So all children when they're in environments where needs are not reliably being met will instead of jumping to the conclusion there's something wrong with my parents they will generally conclude there's something wrong with me and my needs my needs are too much and in such situation um, shame is generally the experience Shame is the sense that there's something wrong with my core self. In this case, my core needs are wrong because I keep looking for attention and nobody's giving it to me. Therefore, there's something wrong with me, not with the environment that I'm in. And this can happen to us, not just as children, but throughout adult life. And my work providing um, Buddhist uh, spiritual counseling um, which is very similar to the therapeutic encounter. Um, I meet constantly with people who've internalized a sense of shame in adult relationships, uh, that there's something they believe uh, over time when they're not getting their needs met in a work environment, a romantic environment, a friendship, they'll conclude there must be something wrong with my needs. There's something wrong with me. And in those situations and those needs um, will eventually start to repress those very core, natural, inherent, uh, and vital needs. The need to be seen, the need to be emotionally understood through disclosing how we feel, the need to be appreciated and encouraged, the need for companionship, or people can repress these core needs uh, as a way to not experience again and again disappointment. And one of the first things that happens is we'll live up in our head as a kind of mild disembodiment um, because needs are most acutely, when they're not met, they're most acutely felt in the body is what's called somatic markers. When our needs aren't met, our stomach tightens, our uh, muscles uh, in the heart center start to contract, the vagal uh, nerve area, the uh, throat tightens, the the jaw locks and to not feel this underlying stress will essentially uh, become less and less aware of our body more and more um, disembodied as it were. Um, so from this point on, there is some very clear uh, uh, outcomes that can occur. Um, when we believe there's something wrong with our needs in certain situations, workplaces, romantic relationships, friendships, family systems, peer groups, and so forth, um, we'll avoid disclosing 
not only the needs, but the emotions associated with those needs. Uh, loneliness. So when we feel lonely, we want to connect. But if we don't get enough connections in our life, we'll stop expressing our needs for connection. And thus, we'll also stop allowing ourselves to even experience our loneliness. We'll constantly need to uh, repress the experience of loneliness um, we won't be able to tolerate, uh, tolerate it. So we'll immediately search for any stimuli to replace awareness of loneliness because it's no longer integrated into our self-structure. Um, uh, when people need stimuli, they need to be seen, appreciated, encouragement, encouraged. Uh, they need companionship and those needs are not being met. Then... Uh, those needs might be activated by times we feel bored uh, or uninspired. And so if we don't get the, the need for attention and stimuli met from others, then eventually we'll have to suppress uh, any experience of boredom. We won't be able to tolerate boredom. And so once again, we'll look to stimulate ourselves uh, and, to, and to alleviate so sometimes when people can't tolerate loneliness or boredom, they will use uh, addictive substances that upregulate dopamine, which temporarily relieves the symptoms or the experience. So they'll eat or they'll shop or, or they'll engage in frantic texting or social media engagement, which... Uh, uh, to alleviate the feeling. Um, and so uh, it can be, unmet needs can be a foundation for uh, compulsive addictions in life. Situations where our needs aren't met leave in their wake negative feelings, and those negative feelings will then persist as what are known as somatic markers. And whenever something in the future reminds us of those unmet needs, we'll avoid that situation. Let me give you an example. Oh, my cat has come here to visit me. Hey, sweetie. So, uh, yeah, she's gonna rest on my shoulders. Um, so, uh, uh, for example, for me, uh, clearly, I don't mind cats sitting on my shoulders. I love actually galleries, music, movies, <clears throat> travel, because uh, I feel, I've, as a child, I felt safe and seen in those situations. When my parents uh, would go to galleries, the environment would always turn beneficial, uh, relaxed, when we'd go out to, my dad and I would go out to hear music, it was always enjoyable. Uh, I loved being with my mom uh, in movie theaters. Uh, she would take me out to inappropriate European art films when I was very young, but it was still great and I loved it. And uh, travel was generally pretty exciting. On the other hand, there's things I now avoid in my adult life, because in my family system, uh, originally I'd never get my needs met in certain situations or be seen or feel safe. So one example would be uh, boating. My dad would force us to go on boats that he built, which would then sink in the Long Island Sound, we'd have to be rescued, or he'd get them landlocked on sandbars and stuff like that. So to this day, as an adult, I cannot bear getting on boats unless they're huge. Um, visiting relatives was always a time of uh, discomfort for me. And so going and driving out to places in the suburbs to visit relatives, I avoid like the plane, plague. Um, essentially, the things in our, uh, we, 
our decisions and our behaviors are guided by somatic markers or feelings. And if something in our adult life reminds us of a, a, a situation in childhood where our needs weren't met, it will activate negative feelings, which will activate withdrawal behaviors. So we'll, we'll avoid the same situations that are associated with stressful times early on in our life. And on the other hand, situations that remind us of times in childhood where our needs were met will activate positive uh, approach feelings. And so we'll follow through with that. And the Buddha was very clear in the Paticca Samuppada uh, just as much as contemporary neuropsychology, the role that feelings, which are essentially shaped by early life experiences, now influence our adult choices. Generally, things we avoid, we avoid them because they trigger negative feelings and the things we move towards trigger positive feelings and so forth. So... Um, Another outcome of persistent unmet needs is that eventually survival strategies will replace knowing and expressing our needs. So instead of expressing our needs for attention, empathy, understanding, appreciation, uh, companionship, uh, we'll focus on the needs of others. We'll, ascend, we'll give up expressing our needs and just focus on the needs of the parents and become a caregiver for them. Or uh, many of us will learn to develop what Winnicott called a, a false, inauthentic self, where through projective identification, we'll start to express completely uh, inauthentic emotions even during times when our needs aren't being met, we'll express gratitude or thanks or we'll try to be delightful or um, we'll try to win uh, someone's good graces, even in situations where our needs are not being met or understood. Um, many of us will try to win love through looks and performance um, people will literally ch uh, try to uh, perfect their body as a way, as a strategy to get their needs met because they don't feel that they're seen or appreciated for just who they are. Some people will become extremely self-reliant. As uh, uh, People with avoidant attachment will become extremely self-reliant as a way to survive because they'll conclude that all of their needs are never going to be met by other people. And it's better just to give up expressing those needs and to completely learn to suppress awareness and just to get on with life. And that's not a very healthy solution, but many of us do come to it. Um, many of us, to get our needs met, will desperately become... Uh, the people that our parents or the adults around us or our siblings want us to be. Some of us wind up being turned into a confidant of a parent when we need a model or we need uh, someone to support us, but we wind up being told all of the intricacies of of interpersonal events that really shouldn't be shared with us. Some people will... Uh, uh, I've known people who've gotten into sports to get attention from parents or who've gotten into theater or, um, or music simply to uh, be seen um, and so on and so forth. So we can develop essentially these survival strategies as a way to replace the authentic expression of our needs. We use roundabout ways to get any form of attention rather than simply clearly stating what it is we need. Uh, these adaptations 
although they start as forms of protection, desperate measures to be seen and appreciated and soothed and understood, even though they're roundabout, they replace expressly stating our needs for connection and love. <clears throat> All adaptations restrict our ability to connect and in adult relationships overtly state again what is missing for us or what we need from our partners. If we use these survival strategies for too long, such as um, focusing on the needs of others or presenting an inauthentic false self where we pretend to be satisfied and happy campers when we're not, or try to win attention through looks and performance or self-reliance, we'll, we'll struggle setting boundaries in relationships to protect ourselves because at the heart, these adaptations or survival strategies are desperate measures to, I mean, they're basically based on this core shame that there's something too much about my needs. And so I have to hint at my needs or go about getting my needs met surreptitiously. And therefore I won't be able to set boundaries because that will risk the entire relationship altogether. Um, uh, our identities and our sense of self can be entirely based on these um, survival strategies. So over time, we can really believe that we really do uh, are the people that we've constructed simply to survive in environments where we weren't paid attention to. Um, we can believe that being perfect or being successful or being uh, having a certain body type or being always uh, self-reliant. That's who I am. And that's a mistake because if there's anything that defines us, it's these core needs, not our survival strategies that we adapt in times when our core needs aren't being met. But oddly enough, as adults, we can begin to identify in the place of, uh, of knowing ourselves as just fully fluid human beings with a variety of needs and things to express, we can actually begin to identify with the survival strategies we developed uh, simply to uh, get attention. Um, and uh, so our sense of self uh, becomes distorted. It disconnects us in ways from relationships because now there's whole needs and emotions that we're suppressing because we don't believe that anyone will meet these core needs or understand these emotions because they weren't met in childhood. Therefore, I'm not going to um, display them. I know people who've spent their entire adult lives unable to feel angry and disappointed because those emotions and the needs associated with those emotions, which are basically the need associated with anger, is simply to be understood to have a sense of being able to set a boundary or, or be able to communicate the experiences that have caused us emotional pain. But many people will just learn to not feel angry or not feel, uh, allow themselves to feel disappointment or allow themselves to feel um, uh, even boredom or loneliness because the emotions are associated with needs that haven't been met. And so we cut off the fluidity of our emotional life. And when we cut off emotions, we cut off all the uh, vital adaptive behaviors associated with emotions. Uh, and finally, um, our bodies in situations and where our needs are chronically not met will tighten and remain chronically tensed, contracted, 
And because we're disembodied by that time, we won't be aware of how we are living in this tense, you know, tight, defensive, I'm not safe, I don't have a secure base with others body. And then what happens is what's called somatization, somatization or conversion, where the chronically tensed body becomes a very real injury. <clears throat> it's not psychosomatic. It's very real that chronic tensing contraction of muscles can in time turn into very real injuries. As John Sarno, you know, pointed out in his book on back pain, that chronic tensing can over time turn into a deoxygenation of muscle groups and lead to tears and all kinds of back pain and so forth. Uh, people will have chronic fatigue from a life spent too long in the sympathetic uh, autonomic nervous system um, where they will be constantly in a state of mobilization and there'll be a chronic then secretion of cortisol, which is extremely damaging to the, you know, the liver, arteriosclerosis, deactivates the immune system, makes us more susceptible to diseases, even cancers and so forth. So unmet needs over time, if like they, we, we are in work situations or family situations or relationships where core needs for, you know, I didn't even list the need for at times independence, uh, but also those other needs of being seen and uh, encouraged and understood. If we're in an environment, work, uh, friendship, relationship, family systems, where we're not getting our needs met in those ongoing uh, environments, our body is tense and tight. And over time, we literally can make ourselves ill from it. So it's all of this has kind of been a long, you know, introduction to how one, it's uh, important to address. Uh, it's never too late to address the times in our life where needs aren't being met. Um, I have to say that even though I work in therapeutic interactions with people, it's not enough simply to understand how our survival strategies were shaped by early environments and traumas, it's our responsibility, no one else's, to reconnect with unmet needs and unacknowledged emotions. And it's vital for us to learn and practice disclosing these needs stating these needs and setting the boundaries to protect us when our needs aren't being met. Uh, our childhoods and early environments aren't our fault, but it's our responsibility to address. So one of the, I'm, I broke them down into five steps of how we go about addressing. Uh, the first is in disclosing unmet needs and associated emotions first to empathetic friends. So we have the practice of acknowledging which needs haven't been met in workplaces, family systems, relationships, friendships, where we talk about times where we expect it to be connected with or people who are not listening to us, they're just talking about themselves, but not inquiring as to how we're doing, or we disclose to empathetic people how uh, the, the uh, times where we are constantly feeling emotionally triggered by situations. And so you, an, an obvious question will, would be, how do we know when there's unmet needs? if we've become so good at suppressing 
and repressing these needs and associated emotions? How do we know that they're even there? Well, there's some very clear clues. The first is in any situation in life where we uh, complain or feel dissatisfied with the behavior of other people that are constantly in our life. That's uh, an obvious clue. The, the blame-shame uh, duality of uh, either after certain interactions always feeling bad about ourselves or in certain interactions always feeling bad about the other person is a clear indication that some core need for trust, independence, being seen, being soothed, being encouraged, being, you know, modeled, being, you know, uh, understood and so forth has not been met. So whenever there's any uh, interpersonal interaction in the aftermath where our minds are spinning, and recapitulating, uh, repeating uh, the interaction. That is a clue that in some way, some need hasn't been met. And if the stories are always similar, then it means that this is a chronic need that hasn't been met in that situation. So if we're always frustrated with somebody at work or always frustrated with some quality of a romantic partner or a friend or a relative, then it's clear that a need hasn't been met. The next step is, of course, knowing that to state the need. We've practiced with our friends. We know what the, the need, how how it needs to be stated. We actually practice with the person. That's scary. It's very scary to finally at times put aside our survival strategies, which are roundabout ways of getting needs met. Some people not only be uh, uh, feign um, that they're happy when they're not, or will use passive aggressive ways to get attention or to express their displeasure. But the clear statement of needs is one of the very first steps we all take to healing and moving forward in our life as confident uh, adults with agency. Until we have the capacity to state needs, even in difficult situations like workplaces or so on and so forth uh, with people um, in delicate situations until we learn to uh, put aside roundabout methods of getting needs met and confidently state needs. We in some way remain trapped in the patterns established in our childhood. When we state needs clearly and they're not met, that's a time for then, of course, setting boundaries. Boundaries are mostly for ourselves, which is to acknowledge how safe is it really for me to engage with this person, what topics are safe to talk about, uh, and do I even need to think about the uh the degree to which this person is involved in my life and so forth, if they cannot understand what our needs are. Now, in terms of meditation and internal practice, there's a lot of, there are tools to help with uh, integrating unmet needs and repressed emotions into our awareness so that we can express them and also move forward in this developmental process, which is one, develop uh, the ability to put aside the cognitive uh, blame-shame cycle that spins out in the aftermath of situations where needs aren't being met, and to actually simply, one, connect and feel the emotions in and of themselves, as painful as they or frustrating as they might be. And then when we've connected with them, we actually 
can learn how to, and I know this is going to sound odd, but we can learn how to ask ourselves when we connect with the, the true feelings of frustration or disappointment or sadness or loneliness, we can ask these feelings associated with early um, uh, abandonments and so forth, what do they need right now to feel safe? What, what need hasn't been met? And um, so that's a very key part of mindfulness practice, which is to push aside all of the stories and overlays that cloud awareness of embodied experience, the sensations in the body themselves associated with disappointment, longing, frustration, boredom, loneliness, and so forth, be with those feelings. And then with those feelings, be able to, from that place, begin to propose to those affects uh, what needs aren't being met and see how they respond. And we'll do this in the practice to make it clear. And then finally, we can also, of course, I should note, we're not going to do this in tonight's practice, but if you look through the talks, there's also a lot of talks I've given on cultivating a secure base through reflection and visualization practices. So if you look back through some of the talks on core shame and uh, attachment, you can find how we can cultivate a secure base within. And that creates the confidence as well to be able to state needs clearly. So <clears throat> thanks for listening. I hope something was interesting in that. And um, so now what we're going to do is we're going to actually put these insights into practice. We're going to actually begin to unearth what some of our unneed, unmet needs are by connecting with the actual emotional, uh, the affects, as it were, in times when we've had environmental failures in our life. So thanks for listening and find a really comfortable seated position and while you do so, just going to remind you that my work as a Buddhist pastor is entirely supported by donation only. I don't charge for anything I do. I just uh, live off of the uh, support that's freely offered in the Buddhist tradition. So if you'd like to support my work, it's uh, Dharma. Punks with an X, P U N X N Y C. That's a Venmo. Or the Dharma Punks NYC website has the PayPal. So thanks for that. Now let's meditate together. So I'm going to sit in a really comfortable position. And um, closed my eyes because uh, we want to develop an internal embodied awareness. Again, one of the um, hallmarks of uh, accruing too many unmet needs in our life is that we will have a tendency to live disembodied up in our heads, up in our stories, our thoughts, our Interpreta interpretations, our plans, our just, you know, just all the, the stuff we add on to any given moment rather than just feel the experience in the body. So we close our eyes to bring our attention inward. And then even with our eyes closed, remind ourselves to bring our awareness reel it back in from the world around us and just bring your awareness into the body and just find a sensation that is um, most, uh, that presents itself 
an anchor. For many of us, it could be the breath, the feeling of air entering, filling up the diaphragm, the lungs, and so forth, and then the breath being released through perhaps the nose, and just becoming aware of all the sensations associated with respiration. And if um, the breath doesn't feel right, that's fine. You can just bring your awareness into the body and start surveying your body with a really soothing um, caring, sympathetic, empathetic awareness that just moves through the body and wherever it encounters any clenching, any tension, just breathe into that contraction and just release begin to cultivate self-care in your practice. So I have a little tension in my right shoulder, so I'm first gonna gently reposition it and then just breathe into that area, soften, release. feeling the eyes and the eye sockets and just seeing if we can influence the eyes to settle, to relax. There's nothing to look at right now. Just allow the eyes to float in the eye sockets like two warm pools of water. And just slowing down the breath. We want to be able to count to four or five on the inhalation and then on the exhalation, try to make the count be much higher. So if you can count up to, slowly count up to four as you breathe in, try to count the, try to have the exhalation be smooth, slow enough to count up to six or seven or even eight with the exhalation. 
the longer the exhalations, the more you tone the vagal nerve, release acetylcholine, deactivate mobilization states, lessens your heart rate, stems the release of the secretion of cortisol, quiets the amygdala, the threat detection center of the brain, so on and so forth. So many useful outcomes simply by slowing down respiration, especially lengthening the exhalation. And try to have the breath be as fully embodied as you can. So you feel the breath, not just in the chest, but expanding the belly first, and then the chest, and then as we breathe out, feel the slight release, the downward shift of the chest cavity and the softening of the belly.
So at this point, moving on to the second part of the practice, I'd like you to bring to mind some ongoing interpersonal relationship situation where there's elements that don't sit well, perhaps in the aftermath of interacting with this one person or this one institution or this one place, a group of people uh, that we feel in the aftermath uh, uncomfortable and there's a tendency to repeat in our minds and perhaps even with others stories of either unfairness or frustration or uh, uh, even a sense that maybe there's something wrong with us. But go where there's a lot of uh, repetitive ideations Generally, in situations where our needs are met, there's not this aftermath of a flare-up of uh, ideations, thoughts, stories, blame, shame, resentments as a way to repress awareness of the feelings. So what we're going to do is just find those clear markers. And then what we're going to do is put aside awareness of the stories of what they're doing that's wrong, and so forth. Uh, and just sit, connect with the feelings associated with these frustrating interactions. Feelings being the tightness of the belly, or the chest, or the throat. And you'll know these because only a few moments earlier, we were working on relaxing the body. So anything that's suddenly become tense, contracted, constricted, is a clear indication of the body tensing in relation to this experience. So again, you can visualize the interactions that feel unfulfilling or unsettling. Or just repeat it just enough of the story to trigger the feelings, but then put aside the story, the images, and just go into the body and just allow yourself to feel Whatever it is, it could be a mixture of anger, frustration, disappointment, longing, uh, sadness. We don't have to name the state, the emotions. We just sit with the feelings in the body. They might be subtle.
but to see if you can find the somatic underpinnings They might just be up in the face, in the eyes, the forehead, the throat. And now that we've connected with this embodied state, no matter how subtle or uh, difficult, even just being with the body as we've brought to mind this situation, see without adding too much, or without adding any logic or rationalization or anything, if we could just ask this feeling what it needs to feel safe, to be understood, to be okay. And just see what bubbles up from the body rather than from our rational mind, which is just filled with survival. Oh, I can't need or say this or that. But just see if we can connect with the older, more core needs that we've perhaps pushed aside, repressed for a while. Again, needs can be to be seen, to be heard, to be appreciated, to be understood, to be shown by others how to do something for com we have needs for companionship. We have needs at times to be trusted to do things on our own. The need for independence. And finally, if you've come up with a need that sits right in your body, that when you think, oh, I haven't been appreciated, or I haven't been understood, or I haven't been given enough trust or independence or encouragement, whatever when you've gotten the right need understood, your body will, will slightly shift. There'll be a felt sense of, yeah, that's it. 
felt sense of, yeah, that's the need that hasn't been spoken. And whatever that need is, you might not get it in this meditation, but when you come up with that need, set an intention. I'm going to talk about these needs. I'm going to state these needs. It's a new year. It's a new time to fully move into a fully realized life with uh, agency and confidence. <laughs> 